Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, Mosaic, take a look at the book of James, chapter 2, verse 14. I was asked by somebody this morning to make sure that the sermon this morning is really interactive and not boring, uh, So, because they stayed up late last night. So we're going to start with a history lesson, uh, is, is the perfect way to get everybody truly engaged. Uh, so on April 2nd, 1865, the Confederate Army was near defeat in Petersburg, Virginia, and Robert E. Lee sends a note to the Confederate president, Jefferson Davis, to basically say, evacuate Richmond, it's going to be overcome, you need to get out of here. And so uh, Jefferson Davis went from from Richmond, Virginia, down to Danville, Virginia, and then eventually deeper and deeper into the south. Now, when Lee surrendered his army, this amazing army of of the northern Virginians, effectively that ended the Civil War as we know it. And so Jefferson Davis immediately went into hiding. And his idea was that he was going to flee into some sort of sovereign country that he might be able to start a new government, come back and reignite this thing that we we called the Civil War. But it happens that he was actually captured during this time. And there's a lot of rumors and stories that go around about how Jefferson Davis was captured. But the most famous rumor is this, that he was captured wearing a woman's dress, his wife's dress. And so, you know, he has denied this, of course. Uh, His wife denied this and, and all these things. They were chalking it up to that the federal government was trying to say that this was his final act as a president of the Confederacy and all these things. But in a letter that his wife, Verena Davis, wrote to her cousin, she admitted that Jefferson Davis was, in fact, wearing a dress. And she tried to pass him off as her mother to the Confederate Army when they found him. She said, please don't harm her. This is my mother. And in fact, Jefferson Davis's uh, nephew later wrote in his journal confirming that Jefferson Davis, in fact, was wearing a dress to try to hide himself away from being arrested. So his final act as the Confederate president was wearing women's clothing. You can change the outside appearance of somebody, but you cannot change the inner content of someone. You can't change their character. And that's going to be our conversation this morning. That we might be able to mask ourselves to look like a particular way, but at the end of the day, who we are, what our character is, and how we act out on that is what really shows in our life. So the last few weeks we've been digging through this book of James. And last week we we really kind of dug a whole lot deeper, really seeing just how much James parallels the teachings of Jesus. Because James says the most important thing the royal law when it comes to following Jesus is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. But James says what? Love your neighbor as yourself. And he challenges this, this, these churches that he's writing to saying, how 
how can you follow Jesus and show favoritism to others? How can you follow Jesus and discriminate against other people? More specifically, how can you as a people who are being oppressed by the rich, elevate the rich in your church community and push down the poor in your church community? How are you doing that, James says? And so he says, the law that we live by is the royal law of God. And he says, this is the most important thing. He even presses the matter so much that he calls into question the faith of an individual who discriminates against others and doesn't love them as the way they love themselves. So James is going to take this a little bit further here in chapter 2, verse 14. Here we go. It says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by actions, is dead. Someone will say, you have faith. I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe in one God, good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. Remember when I said that that the reformer Martin Luther wanted to push out the book of James out of the Protestant Bible? These verses are the very reason that Luther struggled with it. Martin Luther has a very fascinating story. He grew up in a home with a very overbearing father, and his father said to him, imagine this, you are going into law. That's what you're going into. None of us ever experienced that ever growing up where your parents are like, this is what you're going to do, even though you didn't want to do it. So Martin Luther was forced into a law career. But a fascinating thing happens after he's received two law degrees. He, uh, Providence would have it that he's out in the middle of a field when a thunderstorm hits. Lightning crashing all around, thunder making these obscenely loud noises, and Martin Luther thought he was going to die. And at this point, the famous words is that Martin Luther declared out, Save me, Saint Anne, I will become a monk. And so Martin Luther puts his law degree to the side, puts the law practice aside, and becomes an Augustinian monk. But could you imagine that, that Martin Luther projected onto God his overbearing father? None of us have ever done that ever in our lives, right? We project our parents onto God. And so Martin Luther had this really strange fear of God. He was so afraid that God was going to punish him for all his sins that Luther was famous for going into the confessional for hours on end, confessing every single possible sin he could think of. And he would step out of the confessional just to think of one more thing to step back in and begin to confess again. Luther used to beat himself. He used to scourge himself because he thought that would appease the wrath of God. What didn't help Luther at this time is that the church system of the time uh, was really set up on this system of, of merits. So essentially this, you could buy a merit of grace in order to cover over your sin. It was a practice called indulgences. And upon Luther going on a pilgrimage to Rome, he, he really struggled with the corruption of the church at the time. It was a Ponzi scheme. It was a way for the church to make money where they could sell indulgences to people to prey on their fears and to make money in the long run. And so Luther began to wrestle through his theology and what he learned from the church, and that pushed him into Scripture. And as Luther began to study Scripture and to work Scripture, he finally came to a text that would change his life and literally change the history of the church forever. It comes from Romans chapter 1, verse 17. For in the gospel the righteousness is revealed by God, a righteousness that is by faith first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. 
These six little words changed Luther's theology and the church forever. The righteous shall live by faith. Solo fides. It's this idea that salvation doesn't come by merit. It doesn't come by purchase. It doesn't come by an act. Salvation comes by faith through Jesus Christ. And so you can imagine as Luther bumps against the text of James that how can you say you have faith without merit, faith without deeds, faith without work? Luther came to this amazing paradox in his faith. Therefore, he called James the, uh, the straw epistle. He didn't want James to be in his Bible. For many of us, I would say for three quarters of us in this space that grew up in church, we grew up in the Protestant tradition. And so what was immersed in your head as you were growing up is that salvation comes by grace through faith, right? Those famous words from Paul. Salvation comes through grace, not by works, so that no one can boast. And so many of us grew up in a church that this idea of works, this idea of actions, this idea of things is not an act that that goes against our salvation, but we read the book of James and it clashes against us. It causes a paradox within our life. A paradox is when you see a shift, a different perspective of things that you normally understand and perceive to be true. So is the Bible contradicting itself? What's going on within this text here? We have to kind of take a look, a closer look to see. Can faith without deeds save us? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by actions, is dead, James says. James uses the word deeds 12 times in this letter. It's the Greek word ergon. It means work or labor or an act or an understanding or an action. And when we're looking at ergon, we need to to look at it through the framework of the way that Luther was looking at it. When Luther saw this word works, he's looking at it through the framework of the church's indulgent practices of the time. So in his mind, the wording works means the word merit, which means I don't want this in my Bible, is what Luther's thinking. But maybe that's not what the word means. In fact, this word ergon is used 159 times in Scripture, and so should we get rid of it? That means we would be getting rid of the words of Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew five sixteen, In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good ergon, your good deeds, and praise your Father in heaven. Or what about Paul? You know, Paul was the one that said, By grace we are saved through faith. Paul writes this, God will give each person according to what he has ergon, according to what he has done. To those who are persistent to seek good and glory, he will give... Give them eternal life. So what if Aragon doesn't necessarily mean an act that we do in order to receive salvation? What if this word of works and deeds and actions go along with faith? It's an intermingling of itself. And to prove his point, James gives somewhat of an, a hypothetical joke. He says this, I want you to think and imagine for just a second that you walk out of the gym, that you go down to Shotwell Road, you take a left on Shotwell, then you take a, a right onto, cover, or onto Highway 70, and when you head up to si- Highway 70, you're going to take a left into the Walmart shopping center. You get out of your car, and you go up to five or six of the, the homeless men that are there that are panhandling, and you go up to them, and you simply say, be well today. I hope you stay warm. Get in your car and leave. James says, what have you done? What good is that? He says, the only thing that you have accomplished in that matter is just proven that you are the world's biggest jerk. You've done nothing. He says, how can you say that to somebody and do nothing about their needs? There's nothing there. 
You've done nothing. Uh, your actions haven't proven anything. You've done nothing. Faith by itself, if not accompanied by actions, is dead. Are you starting to see what Aragon means? It's this deeper, fuller meaning of faith and actions that lead to salvation. In November, for the first time in my life, I went to Missouri. Uh, for three days, I flew into Kansas City. From Kansas City, I went to Columbia and then flew out of St. Louis. For three days, I was having conversations about people interested in starting churches, talking with partnership churches about how they can help new church starts in that area. But the unofficial slogan of Missouri is this, the show me state. That's what James is saying. Show me. Show me how you can claim to have faith in God, faith in the living God, and not let your actions go along with that. He goes, I'll I'll up you. I will show you. I will show you through my life and through my actions what the content of my faith actually is. And James says, if you believe that you can just have faith in God and not have actions that follow that up, he says, good for you. Even the demons believe that. Yippee skippy. High five. Thumbs up. And so James is challenging us here. He's saying to us here, do your actions really accompany the faith that you claim to believe in God? And if you don't, what are you going to do about it? And what James is centering in this text here, so many people give commentaries on this text saying that James is saying that this is why we need to live this this tight ethical notion of who we are as as Christians. Look at the context of of the passage here. James is still in the heat of reminding the people about the royal law of God. And so the faith and actions he's talking about here is the faith and actions of doing the ministry of Jesus Christ. And so for us as middle-class Americans, James is preying on our fears. He's tapping into the things that we're not comfortable with. Because as long as I've been in ministry, I've heard every excuse in the book of why people can't do ministry. Well, our students go to school with those students, and it would just be embarrassing for both sides if we helped out with the, and gave them food and clothes and bought them Christmas gifts and these things. You know, I don't understand why you guys are going all the way over there to do a mission trip when we have needs right here. Oh, I can't sign up for the project to meet the needs right here. We have something we're doing this Saturday. Oh, I can't go on a mission trip. Uh, we only get two weeks of vacation, and we've already booked our cruise for the year. We have all the excuses in the book of why we can't do ministry. I'm with Morf Morford when he wrote this. When Jesus tells us to love our neighbor as ourselves, we imagine that there is a distinction between the two. Our fallen nature leans towards an interpretation that makes a distinction and allows us to congratulate ourselves while we neutralize and ignore both the power and word of God. Translation, we justify loving God and we justify not loving our neighbor. And it's simple. We don't like ministry. Because ministry is something we like to avoid like the plague. We aren't comfortable with it. We're not comfortable with people who don't look like us, who don't think like us. We're certainly not comfortable going to those parts of towns, surrounding ourselves with those types of people. Inconceivable it would be for us to, uh, to strive in the way of Jesus, to serve people in other ways when we have to actually live outside of our comfort zone. When it takes away from our time, our money, our priorities, we don't engage in ministry. And even if we're willing to help, we only want to do things that are quick and easy. It's like putting a band-aid on an open, gushing wound. Ministry is opportunities for us to, to really engage people. But for many of us, we don't engage ministry because it unveils our discrimination. It unveils our favoritism and maybe even our racism. And James already jumped all over that within the text. 
then we worry. What if? What if I give them money? What if I, what if I take them to do this? What if we give them this thing? We always wonder what could happen. Shane Claiborne, uh, a huge activist in Philadelphia, uh, he's got this quote saying, we don't always ask and question CEOs that we give our money to, and we've seen through Wall Street what they do with our money. So why should we call into question the money that we give to homeless people? I'm pretty sure that Jesus would want us to lean more towards grace and mercy. I don't think he's going to reprimand us for giving homeless people money. More likely, we will discover just how generous we can be if we give away more. So we avoid ministry. Or as one author put it, this is the hole in our gospel. This is the hole in our gospel. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest command? Love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the laws and the prophets hang on these two commands. James labeled this the royal law. And he says this idea of having faith without actions is idiotic. This idea of thinking that we can actually follow Jesus and not engage in the ministry of Jesus, well, that's not a gospel at all. That's just some made-up religion that we have created for ourselves. It's some sort of internal philosophy of who we are. And so James is trying to convey to this group of people, this is a common thread. By accepting and embracing the love of God in your life, you as well accept and embrace the love of God to other people people and without those two things together he says your faith is dead and that's why it's a hole in our gospel for many of us we are more than willing to believe in jesus but we are not so willing to serve others in their time of need or to sacrifice our times our wants our desires to do so John backs up James here. John extends this. Listen to the words of John in 1 John 3. He says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our life for our brothers and sisters. Listen to this. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother or sisters in need and has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words and speech, but in action, ergon, and in truth. There is no faith without action. It's just lip service. It's just the theology of the demons. It's not faith, because that's not the faith that Christ is inviting us into. Because at the end of the day, what does it truly mean to follow Jesus? We wrestle through this every single day of our life. Think about what Jesus is inviting us into. God steps into human history. He walks among us. He he does these amazing things of ministry, but then he calls us to come follow him. To follow him into his everyday living, into Jesus' teaching. He calls us to to immerse ourselves in allowing God to take our brokenness, to make us whole. He calls us to follow him so that through us he might show the world grace and love and mercy. So how can we claim to follow Jesus when we're not actually following in the footsteps of Jesus? How can we claim to have faith when our actions are the opposite of Jesus' ministry? We can't, James says. He says, there is no following Jesus without actually following Jesus. Take a look at verse 20. He says, you foolish person, 
do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions working together, and his faith was made complete in what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled, saying, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, and not by faith alone. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. I love James. He says, what does an old man and a whore have in common? Faith! What a great way to enter this conversation. You remember the story of Abraham? There's this long kind of passage between Noah and then we get to this man named Abraham. And God comes to Abraham and he says, hey Abraham, by the way, through you I'm going to make a nation that is far greater than you can ever understand. And Abraham's like, God, problem. Um, I'm 75. My wife is 65. God's like, I'm going to make it happen. He says, by the way, I want you to leave this place of comfort. And I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm sending you to this new land. He doesn't even give him the longitude latitude. He just says, go. And Abraham goes. And along the way, uh, no child is coming. You can imagine they might have been trying. Sarah gets all fed up, and so she says to Abraham, By the way, why don't you just sleep with my handservant? It'll give us a son. That'll be heir to the estate. Can you imagine that kind of proposition? Uh, honey, is this a trick of some sort? Is there... So they have a son. The son's name is Ishmael. But God says, Abraham, that's not the son I'm asking you for. And he takes Abraham out at night, and he says, Try to count the stars. He says, your descendants through the son you will have through Sarah will outnumber the stars in the sky. And so 25 years from the time God promised Abraham and Sarah to the time they finally had a son born named Isaac. And as the boy grew, God did another interesting thing. Remember that story? Uh, Abraham? Yeah, God. Um, I want you to take your son on top of this mountain here, and I want you to kill him. Okay, God. So Abraham takes his son to this mountain. He straps him down to this altar. He pulls up the knife, and as he's coming down with the knife, it says that God sent a messenger to stop him from killing his son, and God credited his actions as righteousness. Fascinating story. Fast forward a couple hundred years, and you come to the Israelites that are about to enter into this promised land to Abraham. You remember this whole thing? And before they go in, they sent two spies into the city of Jericho. And they go into the city of Jericho, and they find out that there's two spies, two Hebrew spies in, in their city. And so uh, the men seek refuge in the home of a prostitute. Yes, a woman who is paid for sex. They hide in her home. And she hides them in their roofing. And although she's a question by the Jericho army, she lies to them and tells them she's never seen these men. And before she releases the Hebrew men to send them back, she says, Promise me that when you overtake this city that you will spare my family. That is an act of faith. To believe that the very men she just protected would spare her life when the time comes. And scripture tells us that when Jericho was overcome, that Rahab and her family survived. Not only this, but Rahab was the great-great-grandmother of King David, which means she was in the lineage of Jesus. That's faith, James says. What does a prostitute and an old man have in common? Faith. Look at verse 26, the last part of our text. As the body without the spirit is dead... So faith without deeds is dead. 
There was Simon Peter, his brother Andrew, James John, Philip Bartholomew, Judas Iscariot, Judas son of James, Matthew Thomas, James son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot. Each of these 12 men left everything. They left their homes, they left their businesses, they left their families, they left their pattern of living to follow Jesus for three years. And for three years, they followed Jesus in and out of towns, they witnessed him perform miracles, they saw him teach paradox after paradox about the kingdom of God. But a strange thing happened. As they were drawing closer and closer to Jerusalem, the certainty of what was about to happen began to raise questions within the disciples. They were confused. Peter even said he refused to allow Jesus to die. And what did Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. (laughs) You do not understand what God is doing here. But when Jesus was arrested, when things began to transpire in Jerusalem, each of the twelve fell away from Jesus in their own way. Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Peter, the rock that Christ was going to build the church on, denied that he knew Jesus three times. Thomas even said that he didn't even believe that Jesus would resurrect until he put his hands in the wounds of Jesus. Each of the disciples, when the time came for the first testing of their faith, for the first proving of their faith, for the first time where their faith could actually play out in actions and works, each of the twelve failed completely. There in my mind as James writes these words, you're saying you have faith without action? Prove me your faith by what you do. And James puts the final nail in the coffin here. He says, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. How do you argue with that? You see, faith is not some shell. It's not an empty affirmation. It's not a bare acknowledgement. It's not an empty philosophy. It's a lively, rich trusting in the living and breathing God. You cannot love God without loving your neighbor, James is saying. You cannot simply follow Jesus and not let your life serve as Jesus serves. Jesus is just simply embracing what he's calling us to. James is calling us to remember the words of Jesus. And Jesus echoes these words in Revelation when he says this, For I know your works, your air gone. They are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth does our faith accompany our actions there's many legendary tales that are associated with uh, the titanic sinking and most of them have to do with acts of courage um, of of people sacrificing themselves and doing things in order to help others survive there's amazing acts of heroism but there's one particular story that's not very common about an act of complete and utter cowardice You see, we live in a day and time where we're kind of like um, the strongest and fittest is going to survive. If the Titanic sank today, there ain't no worry about men and women getting on the lifeboats first. It's like every man for themselves. But in in, in the time of the Titanic, it was just kind of, it was part of society. Men and and, and women would would, would allow themselves to to put children on the boats first, allow the elderly to get on the boats first. It was just part of the social character of the time. And as one Titanic official reported later, it's just part of the human human law, of human nature, to allow women and children to survive while the men would sacrifice themselves. And to break this law, well, there's no way to come back from that. One, one put in a report, he says, if you steal something, you, you can give restitution for stealing something. But if you, you are a coward, how do you make up for doing that? And one particular story that came from the Titanic 
is a man from Connecticut, and his name is William Sloper. And the story goes like this. William Sloper dressed like a woman and got on lifeboat number seven so that he would survive. And before he even poured it in New York City, the story had already been passed along, and the New York newspaper was waiting at the dock to get his take on the story. But it says, as he rove in in New York City, that Sloper was taken away by his father and his brother, never to report on the incident. So two stories of cross-dressing this morning, was it? (laughs) Over for honest, how many of us are cross-dressing in our faith? How many of us are putting on this beautiful outfit that we had this amazing faith in God? We, we just believe in God. We believe in the words of Jesus. We believe in the actions of Jesus. But it's just a cross-dressing of our faith. It's no faith at all. Because inside of who we are, we're not going to act out on this deep, carnal philosophy that God has placed within us. These words of Scripture are difficult. And for many of us in this space this morning, those anxious feelings, maybe even the feelings of anger, that's the Spirit of God wrestling within you. So don't project onto me speaking these words, (laughs) your anger and your frustration and your guilt. Wrestle with the Spirit of God within you. Are you cross-dressing in your faith? In the words of Jerry Springer, or Jerry Seinfeld, not that there's anything wrong with that, but are you truly living out your faith? Is faith what you truly have, or is it some glorified spiritual philosophy? Is there a disconnect between the love of God for you and God's love through you to other people? Are you willing to allow God to do this mighty work within you? You see, as Jesus utters these words from the book of Revelation where he says, Because you're lukewarm, I'll spit you out of my mouth. It's not intended to push down, to neuter, to beat you up. The words of Scripture are intended to build you up. Because Jesus says this in verse 19. He says, Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Are you allow God to do a changing of your heart and spirit this morning? And as we walk through this text, may we come to see that faith is not some sort of internal philosophy. But faith is is a living, breathing thing that happens every single day of our life. In fact, faith and actions together is what truly brings us life. Faith plus action equals life. Are you ready to live life in Christ or are you okay with being dead spiritually? need to worry about opportunities to live out the ministry of Jesus because we here at Mosaic, we're going to give you opportunities to serve others. Fifth Sunday is on March 29th. You have the opportunity to sacrifice one extra hour to serve other people in need on a Sunday morning. To go out, to, to, to collect food, to give to local children who need it. To deliver crops to people who we built raised beds for. To serve Clayton Fitness by painting this space and doing their landscaping. We just announced that on March 22nd, we're going to have a meeting for our JOCO mission trip. Where we're going to have the opportunity to build raised beds for people. We're going to have the opportunity to, to provide fresh produce for people. We're going to have the opportunity to serve some local teenagers who are in a home of distress trying to rebuild their lives together. We're going to have opportunity after opportunity... And all it will require for you is to take off one day of work. I don't care where you work, you can take off a day of work. You've got a crazy, crazy job. Another opportunity, we, we, we have three beds at the community garden that you can adopt this year. 
all you have to do is put a plant in the ground, water it three times a week, and pick a weed out if it's in there. My four-year-old is growing crops in the bed. I'm telling you, you can do it. It's easy to do. Not to insult my daughter. She's brilliant. We have opportunity after opportunity for you to practice your faith through serving other people. We have the community garden summer camp. We have the relational ministries through affinity groups. I can go on and on and on. Faith isn't a philosophy. It's actions and belief that brings you life. So may you wrestle with the paradox of this scripture today. And may you continue to allow God to be the paradox in your life, day after day, challenging you to become something new and more authentic. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.